Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with reporter Paul Monies. Paul covers state agencies and public health. His latest story shows who made some of the requests for federal coronavirus relief funds under the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. Oklahoma officials finally released those applications last week after first denying them to Oklahoma Watch. Paul, how much does the state have to dole, have available to dole out in relief funds, and how much did state agencies, businesses, and nonprofits ask for? Yeah, so the state has $1.87 billion to, to give out under this program, uh, and it received about 1,400 applications for funding, uh, totaling almost $18 billion. Wow. So give us some of the highlights of the applications and, and uh, where the money's supposed to go. So yeah, obviously we can't get through the entire rundown of the list, but we did pick out a few highlights and um, saw that there was some interesting requests by state agencies, including $141 million for the Oklahoma um, Center of, <clears throat> excuse me, I can't, I'm going to start that question over, I'm sorry. <laughs> <clears throat> so give us some highlights of the applications and, and what the money's supposed to go to. Yeah, so obviously we can't go through the entire list of applications, but we did pick out a few that were interesting, um, especially some from state agencies. Um, the health department uh, requested $141 million for the Oklahoma Pandemic Center of Innovation and Excellence. That's kind of the wraparound campus around the relocated public health lab in Stillwater, which has been a controversial move for, for the state agencies. Uh, also, the the Parks Department, um, which has been under fire for some of its contracting with Swadley's Barbecue for restaurants and state parks, asked for, you know, more than a hundred and something million dollars to update state parks. They've already got a state bond program in place to update and renovate some state parks. So that was a little surprising to see that. Uh, you know, some of the bigger ticker items are, are having to do with broadband, which is a big focus of this uh, Relief Act. And you've gotten a couple of $1 billion requests just to build out a broadband network in the state and another $600 million request from AT&T. Now, you first asked for these applications a while ago, right? So tell us what happened when you put in that request. Yeah, so we first started looking at this um, last fall, and then we kind of got the idea that, you know, what are state agencies asking for? Um and so we first started asking about that pandemic center and what they were asking for. And we asked the health department first. Um, they said, go talk to the Office of Man Management Enterprise Services, uh, which is kind of gathering all the applications at the time. They told us no. They said that they're deeming these applications confidential under a purchasing memo they had and under a, a pretty narrow exemption in Open Records Act. So... Uh you and Oklahoma Watch filed a lawsuit to pry those applications loose, right? That's right, yes. We we thought, obviously, that denial and that, that exemption they were looking was pretty narrow and didn't apply to what we were asking for. Uh, so we had some help from the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press and their local legal initiative. We have a great attorney, uh, Catherine Gardner, who helped us uh, get a lawsuit, and we filed that lawsuit against the state uh, in April. So... That obviously that lawsuit hasn't been heard yet. Uh, what happened last week to get us to the point where the state finally released those applications? That's right. So the state had 
answered in court just with his attorney as an appearance in that lawsuit, but nothing had happened since then. Um, last week, the governor, in a press conference on Thursday, uh, talked about the budget and some vetoes that he planned to do on that. And he also talked about the uh, the process for these federal relief funds. And he talked a lot about transparency. And I was at the press conference and I asked him, you know, why his administration was blocking the release of these applications. Uh, the governor at the time in a press conference claimed not to know about the lawsuit, uh, but shortly afterwards, his his uh, his officials contacted me and said that they would they would probably be releasing that pretty soon. When uh, the lawsuit was filed, uh, Paul uh, Oklahoma Watch published. Uh, we've published a number of stories about it. We've uh, discussed it in radio segments and on the podcast. Other publications picked up the story about the lawsuit. Um, how realistic is it that uh, no one on the governor's staff uh, knew about a lawsuit against the state filed by a media organization? Well, I think his staff obviously knew, but the governor himself probably gets sued quite a bit. So I kind of give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. But for sure, his staff and his, his agency that he has a control over, the Office of Management of Enterprise Services, was asked about this on numerous occasions throughout the spring. What's next in the process for approving these projects? So yes, the legislature uh, last year has this joint committee that kind of evaluates some of these projects. Of course, the applications were secret until they came up before the committees and their working groups. Um, now that will be all out in the open. And in fact, the legislature kind of grabbed a little bit of control back and has voted itself into its own special session, which it will continue in this, this summer and possibly the fall to further vet some of these applications and put it into kind of a regular budget process like this, the legislature normally has to, to put these funds out and then uh, eventually get to the governor's signature on approving those projects. How does Oklahoma compare to other states in approving these projects under the American Rescue Plan Act? Well, we're pretty far behind a lot of states. Uh, in fact, um, you know, lawmakers have told me that we're ranking around 40th or so in the speed of which we're getting these these funds out the door. And of course, these are relief funds that are supposed to deal with the after effects and the continuing effects of the pandemic. And so it's a little troubling that we're getting, you know, not getting these projects approved in a, a timely fashion. Um, but, you know, hopefully with the, the efforts by the legislature and the governor to kind of renew their focus on some of this stuff and going through these voluminous applications, you'll kind of see what the demand is for some folks that need the relief too. All right. Thanks, Paul. If you want to follow how Oklahoma is handling that nearly $2 billion in relief money and uh, which applications are being approved, you'll want to follow all of Paul Money's reporting at OklahomaWatch.org. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with Trevor Brown, who covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch. In his most recent piece, Trevor looked at how many bills made it through the legislature this year and who was getting the most done. First off, there were a lot of bills filed this year, as always, but how many actually made it through? Yeah, so they, like you said, there's a lot of bills. I counted or filtered through and there's 3,600 bills filed for this session. Now about 1,500 of those were shell bills. These are bills that don't include substance language. But of that amount, only about 410 made it through the entire legislative process. Of those uh, bills authored by Republicans fared much better, right? Yeah. So um, I, w I wanted to see how many bills um, that Republican-led uh, bills with Republican authors passed. And um, I was pretty surprised to find that only 12 bills with a Democratic sponsor— actually made it through this year. Um, 
that's and the rest obviously were all Republicans. So it's a big, big difference there. How does that compare to past years? Yeah. So uh, this was the fewest number of Democratic led bills that were passed that um, I was able to find in um, in the last 10 years, at least. Um, so, you know, last year, I think there was about 20, 10 years ago, there was maybe three times that many. Outside of the, the quantity of Republican-led bills that passed, what type of legislation uh, did we see yes. getting passed this year? Yeah, so it was definitely uh, an interesting session. Um, you know, we made national headlines with, you know, creating the strictest abortion bills in the country. Um, there is, you know, tax. There's talks about tax uh, decreases that didn't go back. But, you know, there's a lot of bills that were kind of, you know, in the Republican base, things like, you know, the the bathroom bills and things like that. So, you know, what we saw was, you know, Republicans really taking the lead even more than past years. How about uh, the the handful of bills that were authored by Democrats? What did those look like? Yeah, so you kind of expect these to be kind of more left-orientated bills. But, um, you know, I looked and there were, you know, bills that got bipartisan support that made it through. There were bills like, you know, uh, increasing or offering um, more health services for women, um, you know, making the Lyric Theater the national uh, theater of the state. So these weren't, you know, these big, you know, headline-grabbing bills that we might see in other states. Some of these were kind of, you know, more typical legislation that you would see, you know, any given year. Democrats' recent struggles come during a major political shift in Oklahoma over the past couple of decades. What uh, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's it's easy to forget, but, you know, just 20 years ago, there was a Democratic majority in the House and Senate. You know, since then, Republicans have been chipping away. Um, they're pretty much they every single election since then, they've either held seats or, or gained seats. Now they have a historic majority. They have over 81% of the seats in the legislature right now. Well, were the the two parties able to work together on anything this session? Yeah, so there's a number of bills that, um, you know, just because it was a Republican-led or Democratic-led bill, that doesn't mean it's, you know, strictly a partisan bill. A lot of these bills um, going through the process, they would, um, you know, actually get, you know, a Republican-led bill would get a Democratic sponsor on it, things like that. So we saw a good number of bipartisan bills like that. But, you know, when it comes to some of the big, you know, big bills, you know, such as the budget, um, some of these headline grabbing ones, these are more partisan. And we saw a lot of split party vote or split votes with, you know, Republicans all voting one way and Democrats voting the other. What have Democrats said about their challenges over the years? Yeah, so they kind of acknowledge, you know, that, you know, with a, a big minority that you can't really shepherd bills through, but you have to, like I said, you have to work with your Republican colleagues. And they said that's pretty much their goal. And, you know, right now they're just trying to stop the bleeding there. They're trying not to lose any more seats. They're trying to work with Republicans. But, you know, there's definitely some frustration, as we saw with the, you know, the budget talks. You know, not only was the governor not um, invited in the negotiations, Democrats weren't either. And this is nothing new. They've pretty much literally complained about this or criticized Republicans for this almost every year that I've covered the legislature. Well, even though Republicans are pushing through the ma- the, the vast majority of the bills, uh, you know, they don't get everything, right? There, there can still be some challenges. Yeah. So as we see with the, you know, such a super big super majority that it's sometimes hard for the Republican Party to agree on something. We saw that with the uh, 
the voucher education bills earlier this this year. Um, you know, the governor wanted it, the Senate leader wanted it, a lot of House Republicans wanted it, but not enough House Republicans wanted it. And just because the House leadership didn't want to hear it, that pretty much doomed it. So, you know, what we're seeing is that you can't get, you know, it's not just a rubber stamp for whatever Republicans want. They have to, you know, kind of, uh, you know, find a consensus among this party that's, you know, a, pretty much a big 10 party now. Well, as you said, Republicans hold these historic majorities in both houses. With election season coming up, what what might the future hold here? Yeah, so uh, you know, Democrats are definitely looking to at least hold the number of seats. Um, it's going to be a challenge, as I wrote about before, with redistricting. Some of these races are even um, more uncontested or more skewed one way or the other. So, you know, we see Democrats struggling in, in many of the rural areas. They're going to be looking to at least protect the urban areas, maybe pick up a few seats, but it's going to be hard for them to kind of get back to where they were, you know, just 10, 12 years ago. All right. Well, thanks, Trevor. You can subscribe to Trevor's Democracy Watch newsletter and read all his investigative work at OklahomaWatch.org. We're with Oklahoma Watch reporter Paul Monies, who covers, again, state agencies and public health. Last week, he wrote about an internal audit of a nonprofit that approves taxpayer-funded reimbursements for crisis pregnancy centers. Paul, who did this audit and why was it done? Yeah, so this is an internal audit done by the Oklahoma State Department of Health, which is in charge of kind of administering this program. Um, and they were looking at kind of the slow payment and reimbursements by this uh, group called the Oklahoma Pregnancy Care Network to provide funds to uh, crisis pregnancy centers. So what did the audit find? Well, the audit basically found that in the two years that they had the program, there was only maybe 500 women that had been helped by these services, and the contract was called for more than 9,300 people to be called in that two-year contract, and so they thought it was very slow, and they were wondering why things were going so slow in that, that vendor contract. Those reimbursements came from an Oklahoma program called Choosing Childbirth. What's the background of that program? Yes, yeah, so the lawmakers first passed this law called Choosing Childbirth Act in 2017, and of course, that time was a budget crisis. Their goal was to be able to provide state taxpayer money to reimburse these crisis pregnancy centers, which mostly are nonprofits. In the 2017, we had a, obviously a huge budget crisis. They could not fund the program at that time, but set it up in statute. And it wasn't until 2019 until they put the first uh, bunch of funds in there, about $2 million, uh, and set out the bids for contracts on that. Oh, your reporting found the Oklahoma Pregnancy Care Network has some ties to a similar group in Texas, right? That's right. In their first round of bid documents, they they mentioned that their um, board, one of their board members was the executive director of the Texas group, and they counted on, even though they were brand new in Oklahoma and won the bid for the contract, they counted on some of the experience in the program they've had in Texas uh, since about 2005 to, to count on uh, for their, their successful bid here in Oklahoma. So uh, what did the people at the network have to say about the audit? Well, they said that, that they're still committed to, to funding these nonprofits to provide crisis pregnancy care. Um, they also said that the original contract they had um, had some problems with some of the insurance requirements for the nonprofits that they serve and that they were too onerous. And they said that that really um, kind of hindered their, their ability to, to sign up nonprofits under the network. And that now that, that 
those requirements are, are lessened somehow, and they're able to do it in a lot quicker fashion now. So what's next for the program? Well, in the latest budget that the governor signed, um, includes $3 million as an earmark for this program again, and the contract just got renewed with this same group that had the issues before, and they claim that they're going to sign up up close to a couple of dozen providers this year and that they're on track after kind of getting off to a rocky start. And, you know, just to clarify, Paul, when we're talking about crisis pregnancy centers, what, what do those actually do? Yeah, so these are, are kind of places, uh, nonprofits, usually affiliated with some kind of church as well. Um, they're allowing, you know, they, they, they give items for pregnant women and infants and newborns. They also do some limited testing um, for sexually transmitted diseases. And they also uh, can, if they have the, the right staff there, do ultrasounds um, and talk to pregnant women and counsel. Their main thing is they counsel against abortion. And that's, that's required under the law under this funding, too. Abortion's a complex issue, of course, but why have some of these crisis pregnancy centers been criticized by abortion rights advocates? Yeah, some of them have been accused of kind of a bait-and-switch approach. Uh, you've had instances in other states where people will set up an appointment and they'll kind of come back and say, well, we can't do it right now. Uh, come back in eight weeks, and that's after the point where, you know, in that state, abortion might be legal. And so they, some of them are accused of also gaming some search engine uh, things when people search for abortion services in state. Uh, now, the, the crisis centers themselves say that they provide a valuable need and an alternative to people who sometimes feel forced into an abortion as well. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. Uh, Be sure to read Paul's coverage of the audit on this nonprofit uh, network, as well as all his other investigative work at OklahomaWatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at OklahomaWatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. Oklahoma Watch is a nonpartisan, nonprofit news organization. That means that we rely on readers and listeners like you to help fund the important work that Oklahoma Watch does throughout the state. We're in the middle of our spring fundraising campaign. If you enjoy the work we do, if you feel as though you benefit from it and the state of Oklahoma benefits from what we do, please take a moment to visit our website and make any contribution that you're comfortable with, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever's comfortable for you will help keep this important work going. Visit our donations page at oklahomawatch.org.